First Kings chapter 18. While you're turning there, I'll remind you that last week we saw where God consumed that soaking wet sacrifice prepared by Elijah. The prophets of Baal were slain, showing that God will not spare even one, one who has rejected him. And on the day of the great white throne judgment, and what we read from what Jesus said about it, there's not a place where some go unpunished. And that's what we learned as we looked at the slaying of every one of those prophets of Baal. But in all of that, in watching God dispense justice, we also saw him dispense mercy. Now, who else deserved to die right there? It was Ahab, wasn't it? Ahab, the I guess you'd call him the associate pastor of the church of the golden calf because his wife was the, the pastor. Pretty messed up, wasn't it? But by all these things, by the dispensation of justice and of mercy, God showed everyone in attendance that he is God, not Baal. And that day, the weightier matters of the law were not omitted, those being judgment, mercy, and faith. Did you know Jesus said those are the weightier matters of the law? The law contained a lot of provisions. There were a lot of ordinances and details that we followed meticulously when we studied the books of Exodus and Leviticus. But Jesus said there were some that were weightier than others, and he called them judgment, mercy, and faith. And those were not omitted on this day when those priests of Baal were slain, when Ahab was allowed to live, and when the faith of Elijah was strengthened. In fact, Jesus said there were, uh, there were Pharisees in that day. This is recorded in Matthew chapter 23. You're welcome to go read that at another time. But the Pharisees in that day were straining at gnats. That's what Jesus said. And while doing so, they were swallowing camels because they were focusing on the tithe to the exclusion of judgment, mercy, and faith. And when people do that, they lose sight of the most important spiritual things. They take their eyes off of God and put their eyes on man. That doesn't mean we don't keep our eyes on the tithe. Jesus said, these you ought to have done and not to leave the others undone. Now let's see in the next few verses the effect of this mighty demonstration of God's majesty on these people. If you've just joined us online or in person, we're in 1 Kings chapter 18, and we will begin now reading... In verse 42, so Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he cast himself down upon the earth and put his face between his knees. 
So you might picture Ahab, or Elijah, excuse me, going down to his knees and then folding himself downward toward his knees. Position of great humility. Now you know Ahab must have been hungry and thirsty, having spent most of the day watching the prophets of Baal put on a show. And just a few minutes at the end of the day, watching God dash all the hopes of those prophets, of those who worship the false gods. But Ahab left this scene and he went somewhere for physical nourishment. He was told to get up and eat and drink. And so that's where he was en route to. While, on the other hand, Elijah hit his knees in prayer. His meat was to do the will of the one who sent him. You think he wasn't hungry or thirsty? May I remind you, he was probably hungrier and thirstier than anyone else. Perhaps he was tied for first place with the prophets of Baal who leapt upon the altar and did a full day's worth of dancing and self-harm. But Elijah was hungry. For all that physical labor he exerted when he cut the bullet and dressed it, put it on the altar, cut the wood, laid it in order, dug the trenches, did all of that by himself. He rebuilt the broken down altar And as far as we know, by himself, according to those singular pronouns that accompanied his actions in those verses. But even though he was hungry, his spiritual duty preceded his physical need for food. Ahab went to eat and drink. Elijah hit his knees in prayer. He wasn't done. You know what Elijah just did before he prayed? Having done all of those things we studied last week and now, he made a lodging place for answered prayer. If you were here during the teaching of that in Philemon, you understand what that means. He made a lodging place for answered prayer because he had proclaimed the sound of abundance of rain when there was not a cloud in the sky. Remember, Israel had been through three and a half years of neither rain nor dew. Elijah prepared Ahab for the rain by prophesying that it was just around the corner and sent him away to eat and drink. You see, because of sin, there was an earthly drought which resulted in a thirsty earth. And because of sin, there was a spiritual drought which resulted in a thirsty people. Now, before they were a thirsty people and didn't even realize it. You know, if someone is starving themselves to death slowly, perhaps they don't realize that's what they're doing, but others will say, hey, you're starving yourself to death. And these people who were Dying of spiritual thirst didn't realize they were thirsty, yet they were. They were devoid of God's word in their life. But now, after all these great things God has done, 
they've become aware of their need for God and for his word. God's going to pour out rain on the thirsty earth and pour out blessings upon these thirsty people who have said, the Lord, he is the God, the Lord, he is the God. Now let's look in verse 43. Elijah is in view here and said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And he said, go again seven times. So Elijah has gone to his knees and by inference, we might conclude that his servant was somewhere within shouting distance, somewhere where Elijah could say, hey, you over yonder, go do this. So he told his servant, go look at the sea. He didn't say, let's go look at the sea. He said, you go look at the sea. Now let's not miss an opportunity to learn a a vital truth here from Elijah and his nameless servant. Elijah prayed. That was his duty at this time. That was his assignment. It wasn't going to rain just because Elijah said so, but because he prayed so. And that prayer had to be within God's will and answered by God himself. So Elijah didn't just walk up and say, it's going to rain. I snapped my fingers and it's going to rain. No, it had to be because he prayed so within God's will so that God would answer him. That nameless servant's duty, on the other hand, was not to join Elijah in prayer, to fall down next to him at that time, but to go someplace and look toward the sea. It's not that the the servant shouldn't have been prayerful, but let me tell you, Elijah at this time wasn't counting on anyone to be an effectual, fervent prayer. He, He was all alone with all those people around him. He was alone standing for God. So he wasn't about to say, hey, you recent convert, I want you to fall on your knees next to me and I want you to be in fervent prayer. This is important. That servant wasn't given that job. He was told, you go wherever he went, don't know, but you go and you look toward the sea. Perhaps he just went a few yards, perhaps he went a few hundred feet, I don't know. But he went. But the servant's job was to look for evidence of an answered prayer. That was his job. I'll pray, and I want you to go look for evidence of this answered prayer. Now, did when he went the first time, we see he came back, and what did he say? There is nothing. There's nothing. That is, there was no visible answer to the prayer. Did this mean the prayer was ineffective? No, no, not at all. Did this mean God could not hear the prayer or see the actions of the servant unless he went those extra times? Not at all. Neither is true. In our work for God, we are to look expectantly for the answer. But when we don't see the answer, we are to continue in faith. Because it's not that our prayers are not effectual. And it's not that God doesn't hear. God has a reason for answering when he does and how he does. 
Elijah continued to pray. Now, you think about a shallow Christian. If a shallow Christian would have said, hey, there's a sound of abundance of rain, I'm going to pray. Now, you go look toward the sea because that's where those storms would arise from. You go look toward the sea and you come back. And that servant comes back and says, there's nothing. What would a shallow Christian do? Well, I guess that's all. I'm not going to pray anymore if God's not going to listen to me. Just give up. You know, there are people in here, I know, who have been praying for years, some decades, for lost people they love. And if you ask them, have you, have they come to Christ? No. Have you seen evidence that they're interested in the gospel? Some might say yes, and others may say, no, I haven't. But they keep praying because their faith is in the God who will open that person's blind eyes to the gospel. So Elijah continued to pray. And the servant, when he continued to go to the place where the evidence of answered prayer would be visible, showed himself to be faithful, even though there was nothing the first time. We don't base our prayer on actions that we see, on evidence that we see, because praying, just like witnessing, it's not about results, it's about obedience. We hand something to God, we say, Lord, I'm putting this in your hands. I'm praying for this to happen, and let me tell you, if you're praying in agreement with the Bible, then God will hear and he will answer the prayer. That's a guarantee. Because all you're asking God to do is to do what he said he would do. And has he ever not done what he said he would do? No. And if he hasn't done it yet, it's going to happen. Now, if you pray outside of God's will, you can go again 15 times and you'll never see the evidence of the answer because God may say, no, that's not in my will or it's not in my perfect will for you. Those are things we leave with God. Look what he told the servant who came and said in verse 43, there's nothing. And he said, go again, seven times, seven times. Now, seven times is a number of divine completion. Of course, if you added that to the first time the servant went, you'd have the number eight. And uh, eight we see, the eighth day we see circumcision in the Bible. So he told him to go seven times. God created the earth in seven days. He commanded the children of Israel to march around Jericho seven times on the seventh day. And this servant was commanded to return seven times to look toward the sea. Now last week, back in verse 41, I told you that verse 41 would show us, or really verse 43 would show us even more so how great Elijah's faith was. He had just told Ahab, the king of Israel, the one who had sought his life, don't forget that, that Ahab sent to have Elijah killed and he required testimony of people who said, oh, I haven't seen him. He required them to swear to an oath. And so Elijah told Ahab, there's the sound of abundance of rain. He said, in essence, God's about to give you what you need, 
It's just around the corner, and there's going to be a lot of it. The word abundance, there's a lot of it. But at that moment, there wasn't a cloud in the sky. In fact, there won't be a cloud in the sky for the next six trips this servant makes. He's going to, Elijah's going to continue to pray. The servant's going to go, look toward the sea, see nothing, come back and say, there is nothing, there is nothing. It's not recorded that he came back and said there is nothing, but for him to go seven times and come back, it's implied that he, that he came back. He went, he came back, he went, and he came back. Now, perhaps somebody who's a fairly strong Christian, maybe a little inconsistent, but trust God, is, is faithful in their prayer and their Bible reading most of the time. Maybe on trip number five, they would have said, you know, I didn't give up, but I'm going to give up now. Don't do it. Leave it in God's hands. Verse 44. And it came to pass at the seventh time that he said, Behold, there ariseth a little cloud out of the sea, like a man's hand. And he said, Go up, say unto Ahab, Prepare thy chariot, and get thee down, that the rain stop thee not. Now, where were they? They were on a mountain, weren't they? And if you've ever been on a mountain when the rain comes, one of the dangers you face is being trapped by a landslide, a mudslide, particularly where the earth has been scorched by a wildfire and there are no tree roots to hold the dirt. But it can be dangerous in the mountains during a flash flood. It doesn't take long. And although there was just a little cloud in the sky, like a man's hand, Elijah said, Ahab, get down, get out of here. Prepare your chariot. He said, yeah, that's the storm I'm talking about, that God's going to send that little cloud, the man's hand. You see, the answer to the prayer was going to be an abundance of rain. Now, right now, was there a huge storm on the horizon? No. Was there lightning and thunder and black clouds? No. The Bible says it was a little cloud. The first evidence of the answer to that prayer for rain was a small cloud like a man's hand. So even then, when the servant had gone that now eighth time, he didn't see the complete answer to the prayer, did he? And sometimes God is gracious to show us a little cloud like a man's hand that it's a foretaste of the prayer he is answering. Here's an example. We'll just keep it close to home here. Our prayer is that the entire country of Kenya will be evangelized. That all of the Muslims in the Philippines who receive these gospel tracts will be evangelized. We'd love to see that happen. There's not a a lost person in Kenya that we would say, well, you know, I'm not real concerned if they get saved. I just want some of them to be saved. Now, we know not all of them are going to be saved. But our prayer is that they will be evangelized. They will have the gospel in front of them and understand it. And hundreds of thousands of people will be saved. Has that happened yet? No, probably not. But in some of our Facebook posts, God has shown us a little cloud like a man's hand 
where we see one pastor testifying that he believes the true gospel and will begin teaching it to those who are in his church. We see a, another Christian clutching a Bible as precious as a child in his arms. And we may never see the abundance of rain in our lifetimes, but thank God he showed us the little cloud like a man's hand. Now, what if we didn't see that little cloud? What if there were no Facebook, and no Internet, and we just mailed these evangelistic materials far away to those countries, praying God would save souls. And then we sent them again seven times and again and again and never never heard back or heard there is nothing. What would the answer be to that? We continue to pray. We continue to evangelize. Because one day, God will show Christians after us that little cloud. Or perhaps the abundant, the sound of abundance of rain. And I can say that with confidence because he said his word will not return void, but will accomplish the purpose whereunto he has sent it. So Elijah tells the servant, if I may paraphrase that little cloud, that's the foretaste of the answer to come. And what's more, you better tell Ahab to get his two-wheel drive chariot down the mountain so he doesn't have to get pulled out by a four-wheel drive Ford pickup. Sorry for the brand loyalty. But you'd agree with me that Ahab needs to get down the mountain before the rain gets too heavy. Turn around, don't drown, even though there's not a storm in the sky. You know, when a tornado warning is given, I thought of this while I was studying, Isn't it amazing that people will take cover? They'll spend thousands of dollars on a shelter to put in their, in the ground in a spot of protection. Even if a tornado never hits their home. But all they need is the word of a meteorologist. Hey, tornado's headed your way, headed toward fate, Texas. Well, minus a few of those really large wedge tornadoes, most of them are Not very wide, but where they hit, they tear everything up. They take your house and twist it into a pretzel and leave your neighbor's house untouched. So the probability of a tornado striking your house is very small. But the probability of a lost soul going to hell is 100% if they're lost when they die. Elijah took the sight of the small cloud as a flash flood warning. And he wasn't taking any chances because he knew there wasn't a small chance that Ahab might get caught in the downpour. But there was a 100% chance it would happen. Look back now in verse 45. And it came to pass in the meanwhile that heaven, that the heaven was black with clouds and wind and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. What was once a clear sky, then a little cloud like a man's hand, has turned into 
a black sky. Now, if you're a weather channel geek like my wife and I are, well, let me say this. We used to be before it turned liberal. (laughs) But there was a day when the weather channel had weather 24 hours a day. They didn't talk about climate change and greenness and that. So we loved watching it. And now we just pull it up the radar on our phone And when we see the color red in a radar signature, we get excited. You know what that means? That's the sound of abundance of rain right there. There's a lot of rain coming. Now, it says Ahab rode to Jezreel there at the end of verse 45. You think he was second-guessing his religious choice if he rode to Jezreel? No, he, he believed something was about to happen. Did he now believe God? who burned up a wet sacrifice and is about to soak a dried-up earth with a little cloud like a man's hand? We'll see. Verse 46, And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Now in the last verse, Ahab rode the chariot to Jezreel, and in this verse, Elijah ran to Jezreel, and he ran ahead of Ahab. Did you catch that? With the hand of the Lord on him, Elijah was faster on foot than the chariot, even though it was being drawn by a horse, assuming it was a horse. We might remember it this way. Ahab rode while Elijah strode. If that helps you, great. If not, just put that to the side. Let's go to chapter 19. Now, here's a place in the Bible where a chapter break is absolutely unnecessary, but it's there. So, we'll call it chapter 19. Read verses 1 and 2. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and withal how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life, as the life of one of them, by tomorrow about this time. You know, Jezebel is the example, maybe even the epitome, of an unrepentant sinner. What was it that Jesus told the maniac of Gadara after saving him? I want you to see a comparison between these two events. You may not have seen this before. That account is found in Mark chapter 5, and I'll read verses 18 through 20. And just for the setting, this maniac couldn't be bound, couldn't be chained. He was a wild man, and he was unsaved. And when he met the Lord Jesus, Jesus saved him. And it says he was clothed and in his right mind. And he wanted to go with Jesus now. So I pick up at that point in Mark chapter 5, verse 18. And when he was come into the ship, he that had been possessed with the devil prayed him that he might be with him. Howbeit Jesus suffered him not, but saith unto him, Go home to thy friends and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee and hath had compassion on thee. And he departed and began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him. And all men did marvel. 
Now, also contained in that passage was the response of these swine herdmen who had been herding the swine into which Jesus had thrown the devils. And those swine herdmen had asked Jesus to leave, get out of their country. He was interfering with their way of making a living. But the response of those in Decapolis to whom this former maniac, this one who was possessed with the devil but now was in his right mind, a disciple of Christ, their response to his message was to marvel. They marveled. Now, what had he done? What had Jesus done to this man? He'd cast out many devils that had taken over the man. He sent them to enter a swine herd, and the swine herd ran violently down a steep place and were choked into the sea. And another place in that text tells us there were approximately 2,000 of them. That's a lot of swine. That's a lot of devils. Now, Ahab, when he was at the location there on Carmel, where this great contest took place between the prophets of Baal and the prophet of the Lord, Ahab had seen the great things God had done for him as well. How God showed mercy by sparing his life. And Ahab also went back to his hometown and he published those things to his wife. And his wife should have at least marveled, if not Uh, fallen on her face and she should have fallen on her face and said the Lord he is the God the Lord he is the God just as the people did at Mount Carmel those who had halted between two opinions but you see Jezebel didn't halt between two opinions she just had one she was a she was an unrepentant sinner she was a Baal worshiper a Baal priestess and all that she was not about to repent she was like the swine herdman. When Jesus took those devils out of that man, put them in that swine, in those swine. And if you'll look in the text again, it said, So let the gods do to me. So let the gods do to me. Now that's there in verse 2, in the middle of verse 2. Now this is incredible. Her gods, her false gods, Baal being the chief one of them, had been soundly defeated and had been exposed for what they were, frauds, not real. And yet, after all of that and after her husband had told her all the things that God had done, Jezebel still ascribed power to these gods to take her life if she didn't kill Elijah 24 hour, by 24 hours from that moment. It's amazing. That's a hardened heart. And so for anyone who says, well, if, if Jezebel would have just been there, hey, the prophets of Baal were there. And as we talked about last week, the Bible doesn't record that any of them repented because had they repented, they would no longer have been prophets of Baal, but servants of the Most High God. Now look down in verse 3 with me. And just to go back in verse 2, because verse 3 is connected to verse 2, 
Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And it says in verse 3, And when he saw that, that is, when Elijah saw that, he arose and went for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. It says he saw. The word is also translated as perceived. So it doesn't require Elijah to physically see or audibly hear Jezebel say these things. The fact that she sent a messenger to Elijah means there was some distance between them that put Elijah out of earshot, out of eyesight of Jezebel. You might imagine this messenger telling Elijah, this might be how we do it today. Hey, Elijah, Jezzy has a beef with you, and she's going to take you out. And we might respond by saying, oh, I see. See, we would say, I see, even though we didn't see it happen, we didn't hear it happen. But when we say, I see, what we're saying is, oh, I perceive, I understand what you're saying. Now, why is Ahab or excuse me, Elijah, suddenly afraid of the queen's threat on his life. Why is that? Elijah went boldly to Ahab's throne before this to tell him there's going to be a drought. There's not going to be rain or dew all these years, except according to my word. See you later. And then during the drought, after three and a half years of drought, Elijah boldly returned to Ahab's throne And yet now he's afraid. Elijah's afraid. Why is that? Well, let's don't forget something. This is where we learn about Ahab or Elijah, or perhaps we're just reminded that Elijah was a sinner saved by grace, just like we are. In fact, here's what James said about Elijah in James chapter five, verses seventeen through eighteen. Now you'll see in your King James the name translated as Elias. That's just a different way of saying Elijah. So it's the same person. And it says, Elias, or Elijah, was a man subject to like passions as we are. In other words, he was just like us, fellows. In spite of all the things you've read about him, which are all true, he was like us. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. We might summarize that lesson about Elijah the man with two statements. Although he was a man of like passions as we are, he was mighty toward God in faith. And the second one, although Elijah was mighty toward God in faith, He was a man of like passions as we are. Those two go hand in hand. And we've learned this about Moses, about Abraham, Jacob, David, and many other heroes of the faith in the Bible. And it says in verse 3 there at the end, he left his servant there. He came to Beersheba in Judah. Elijah didn't. He left his servant there. 
That servant, even though we still don't know his name, was in it for the long haul, wasn't he? Wherever Elijah was going, he wanted to go. And, and that's all I want to be. I want to be a servant of the Lord. I don't care if anybody knows my name. God knows it, and that's all that matters. If they say, hey, who's that fellow uh, over there at Central, there in Maybank? Uh, you know, you see him there teaching sometimes. That's fine with me. <laughs> it's okay if they don't know my name. Let's look in verse 4. So Elijah's left his servant in Beersheba and says, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. A similar event occurred in Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 39. If you want to write it down, I'll say it again. Matthew 26, verses 36 through 39. It says, Then then cometh Jesus with them, that's the disciples, unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto his disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrow and very sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. That's what Elijah's was, isn't it? Tarry ye here. Elijah put his servant in Beersheba. He said, Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he, that's Jesus, went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Let's look at a few similarities and differences between Elijah and Jesus in these two events. One similarity is that they both wanted to be alone with God in prayer. It's not that they didn't want others to serve the Lord with them and to pray with them, but physically... They wanted to have a little space from all the others and just be alone with the Lord in prayer. Secondly, as I mentioned, they were both sorrowful. Elijah was in fear for his life, and he was worn out physically, spiritually. Jesus was not in fear for his life, but he had a holy dread of being separated from his father because of the sin he would become for us. And yet he had to become sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of Christ in him. What a pull. His love for us, his love for the Father, thank God they would meet at the cross. And thirdly, Elijah would rather die at the hand of Jezebel, of the Lord, excuse me. Elijah would rather die at the hand of the Lord then be killed by Jezebel. Jesus would rather die at the hand of the Lord than be separated from his father. Thank God he was willing to drink from that awful cup, though. Elijah's words were, it is enough. But Jesus' words were, not as I will, but as thou wilt. If God had honored Elijah's words, we would not get to see the rest of the wonderful things that God did through Elijah. And because God honored Jesus' words, 
we would see the great things that God did through him, most especially at Calvary. I texted Brother Fulton yesterday and I said, I'm pleasantly surprised at how much I've learned about Jesus by studying the ministry of Elijah. And I'm not done yet. Now let's look at verse 5. And as he lay, this is Elijah, and slept under a juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. Now in both scenes we just referred to, this one and the Gethsemane scene, Elijah and Jesus were on the ground. Elijah fell asleep, but I'm glad God stayed awake. Jesus' disciples fell asleep, but Jesus stayed awake. Psalm 121.4 says, Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. You say, well, I, th- I thought Jesus was a man and he slept. Oh, he did, but isn't it amazing? Though He didn't sleep in that garden, but when he slept to take rest, yet he was still God and nothing escaped him. That's a different kind of sleep, isn't it? And why, what do the criminals always tell us, Brother Fulton? We stop a, somebody who's been involved in a crime and they have a, a passenger in the back seat and they, they'll have their eyes closed. And they'll say, hey, uh, what were you doing back there? Oh, I was asleep. I don't know what happened. So they use that defense. Because when we sleep, we're not generally aware of what's going on around us. But Jesus always was. Now, what was God's response to Elijah's protest? It's enough to his nap. It was to send an angel and say, get up and eat. I'm not done with you. It's not enough. We have read nowhere that Elijah ate or drank anything since the great miracle there at Carmel. Whether he did or didn't, God knew Elijah needed some basic necessities. Isn't it telling that our God knows not only our biggest needs, but also our lesser needs as well, and he meets them both. He won't leave his children begging bread. Verse 6, I'm going to read verses 6 and 7. Don't know that we'll be able to finish them, but we'll make a run at it. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake baking on the coals, and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink, and laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time, and touched him, and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. What three physical needs did God meet for Elijah? Food, drink, Rest, all of those. And these three needs represent three spiritual needs that we have. For the bread of life, which is Jesus. For the water, God's word. And rest, which is what we do when we trust in Jesus. In John chapter 6, verse 35, I'll give you some scriptures from which those truths are drawn John 6.35, And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. And he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Now how do we believe on Jesus? Through faith in the word. Through faith in the record that God gave of his son. 
Revelation 21, verses 5 through 6. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Right, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. And then Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now we'll put all of those together next week. We'll have to stop for sake of time. So we'll pick up with verses 6 and 7 next week. Any questions or comments about the lesson? All right, let's be dismissed in prayer. Father, we're so thankful for the word of God, for the privilege to study it together for the assembling of the saints on this day as you've commanded, for those who've paid particular attention to the truths, I pray, Lord God, that you would help them not only to remember them, but also to live by them. Strengthen us, Lord, for the task at hand for the journey is too great for us. We need all we can get from your word. We pray for this next hour that you would bless the singing, the praying, empower the pastor as he preaches. And Lord God, it's just good to be in your house today, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.